How are you guys doing, Chile Magic family? It's your host, Mark Karaki. Excited to be bringing you yet another episode of the podcast, and this one is a banger. This week, I had the privilege of sitting down with Mr. Daniel Yu, CEO and co-founder at Wasoko. On the very day, they announced a $125 million raise. This is proof positive that the African ecosystem is on a tear. And Daniel and his team are connecting manufacturers of essential goods and services to mom and pop shops across the continent of Africa. So a good way to think about this is B2B e-commerce platform. And they are on a tear and this is an exciting time for them. Daniel moved here in 2014 from California via South America where he was actually first trying to build a company and launched the company here in Nairobi in 2014. Eight years later, they have a $625 million valuation and they are on their way to the moon and to the stars. Exciting podcast, great story, great founder, great heart, and just proof positive that the African ecosystem is on a tear. Enjoy the podcast. To anybody who's been paying attention, it is obvious that Africa's tech ecosystem is embarking on a hyper growth cycle right now. With over $5 billion deployed in 2021, which was over 250% growth over the previous year. Yet easily 98% of that capital was deployed by non-local firms with investors sitting everywhere but on the continent. This is a huge gap for an ecosystem which by all accounts will lead the future. There is a need for local operating funds with investors who bring local capabilities, networks and resources to truly back founders. Venture building is still a full contact sport and feet on the street are vital if the opportunities in this vast continent are to be realized. And full disclosure, From Here Ventures emerges out of the Impact Africa Network stable, a venture building studio that I personally founded and I'm also the general partner at From Here Ventures. At our DNA, we are builders. We are steeped in the process of taking ideas to market and have first-hand knowledge of what that looks like and feels like. This provides us with a unique insight into what real founders look and sound like. And entrepreneurs can be comfortable that we speak the same language and understand them deeply. We believe that as the volume of venture capital increases on the continent, the best entrepreneurs on the continent will prioritize investors with a deep intrinsic understanding of how things work in Africa, local networks, along with tangible value-add capabilities on their platform. The inflation of venture capital in Africa will accrue proprietary deal flow advantages to funds that can demonstrate beyond money capabilities attractive to the most sophisticated entrepreneurs. Through our venture building efforts at Impact Africa Network, we've built a set of capabilities, networks, and know-how to first solve our own problems as builders, which the entrepreneurs who we will invest in through From Here Ventures will benefit from. In this way, we are way more than money. As a fund, we're excited about working with entrepreneurs who are solving infrastructure-level problems on the continent and founders who hold human well-being at the core of their venture-building thesis and build from there backwards. We're also excited about working with founders who see the strategic advantage of having women in leadership positions in their venture-building. Because in my experience, women bring a vital set of perspectives and capabilities that are critical to the venture-building process. You can reach us at connect at fromherevc.com that's connect at fromherevc.com. We look forward to hearing from you. Onwards and upwards. Now back to the regular scheduled program. Daniel, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. Yeah, this is such an exciting day for me personally. We've tr- we tried to record this about a week ago and the platform just wouldn't, wouldn't work. But 
fortuitously, it has, it has worked out quite well because you have a, an amazing announcement to make today. Indeed, we have uh, just a few hours ago announced our $125 million Series B uh, round of financing. And fantastic. What a day. What an auspicious day. I guess the first question I asked for you is when you started on this journey, did you see this in your mind's eye? Was this day ever a thing in your imagination? Absolutely not. I think most days along this journey, I'm, I'm just happy that we've survived and been able to make payroll. Yeah, to, to, to get to where we are now is, uh, is truly unbelievable. Man, congratulations on that, Daniel. So is it eight years in the making now since launch in 2014? Since I've gone full-time in the business, almost exactly. Yeah, eight years. Amazing stuff. And so... Soko now, you've rebranded as you've already, as you've mentioned from Soko Watch, right? Love, yes, love yes, the hat. Now officially uh, was Soko. And uh, yeah, that's uh, uh, you know, a big part of this announcement alongside our expansion and launch in uh, West Africa as well. That is super cool. So much to, to, uh, to unpack here. What's your valuation right now? 125 million and what's the valuation? So this was a $125 million full equity raise led by Tiger Global and Avenir Growth Capital, which mm -hmm. uh, came in at a $625 million valuation. Amazing. And, and what was the, how long have you been raising this round? This process, thankfully, was actually relatively fast. It's been quite astonishing to me how the fundraising process has, if anything, gotten faster despite raising much larger sums of money than we had before. And I'd like to think that at least some of that is due to, you know, us as a company being much more mature, much more prepared for these sets of processes. But I, I think also as well, it's a reflection of the overall African tech ecosystem and just the sheer appetite that global investors who before were not even thinking about the continent are, are now actually actively getting involved in writing big checks. It is, the time has come, hasn't it? It, it, it came last year, the African startups, I think, raised $5 billion in 2021. I think right now we are post 1 billion and Q1 is not even over 2022. And what a time to be building on the continent. You've been doing it for eight years and I'm sure you can talk about, you've seen the before and after, Daniel. So maybe just give the audience here a sense of what it was like to raise before 2020, before now. What was that like, those seven years or six years? Wow. Yeah. There's uh, a lot of, uh, a lot of war stories from the early days, just to give one, one, one reflection. I remember back when we were raising our seed round. So this was mm -hmm. 2018. We were trying to raise $2 million and we had a firm that came to us and offered to do the full $2 million round. We signed a term mm -hmm. sheet. They did their diligence, everything was totally fine. And then two weeks before the round was actually supposed to be completed and, and money wired, there was a huge scandal where mm -hmm. the managing director of the firm had been publicly outed as having embezzled money from the investors and, and from the fund. And as a result, they obviously had to shut down. And of course, that had nothing to do with us, but it meant that we 
thought we were two weeks away from having $2 million in the bank, which for us was a huge amount of money at the time that was far more than anything we'd ever seen before. And yet, as soon as that happened, we were immediately faced with a bankruptcy in less than six weeks. And to get from that point of basically near certain death to somehow find a way through it and, and get to where we are today is uh, truly uh, astonishing. Yeah, man, that's the entrepreneurial journey, war stories. And it always looks so amazing <laughs> when you do the press release, all the stuff that's underlying all that and the journey, and, and we'll unpack that as we get into this, but not to steal the thunder of the rest of the narrative, let's just kind of begin the podcast where it's a natural place to start. Uh, obviously, we're raising $125 million on the day. We have to talk about that, but let's dive back into history here and, and talk about who, who is Daniel Yu. And uh, I set you up here as we go into that. So a couple of things that to me, in essence, you are just making the rest of us feel average, right? You're averaging out the rest of the crowd here because number one, you speak eight languages, right? And then the other thing is you've committed 70% of your personal proceeds to reduce suffering. Who are you and what are you trying to do? Why are you making us all look so bad? So first question, how, do you, how does this happen? How sway? How do, eight, how do you speak eight languages? Could you talk a little bit about that and explain for the rest of us mortals how this works? I was uh, very fortunate to grow up in a multicultural family. So I, I grew up in California, but my father's from Hong Kong. And in the family, the community that I was growing up in, I was exposed to a lot of different cultures, a lot of different languages as well. And my family was very supportive and encouraging me to engage and, and, and learn as many of them as I could. And so I think for me, that's really where my love of cultures and, and, and languages came from. And I, what I realized is when you actually do go deep with another community and you actually understand what people value, what, uh, what they find important and, uh, and what matters to them, that it, it's a truly unique and, and unparalleled experience. And I believe that language is fundamentally the, the, the channel through which you, you can experience that. And so I've always been somebody who's very passionate about the opportunity to travel and explore. And for me, an essential part of that is learning language. Even if it's somewhere that I just visit for a few days, I always try to learn some of the basic phrases because I think it demonstrates to the people in the place that you're visiting that you actually took some time to learn about their culture, about their heritage. And so for me, especially as we're now building this multinational pan-African business, of course, I want to be in a position where I'm able to communicate directly to our team, to our customers in the language they're most comfortable in. And uh, that's something that uh, I've found uh, extremely fulfilling. Okay. So how many, what are these languages and what's the process? What's the framework? So I speak English, Mandarin, Swahili, Spanish, French, Arabic, Portuguese, and Cantonese. So if, if you are dropped right now in Lisbon. You yeah. Know, what could you do? How much trouble could you get into? I, I would say in, in all those, I am fully conversational, at least. Some of them, I'm, I'm a little bit rustier than others because I don't use them as much. So Portuguese is, is a solid example. But no, I could absolutely get around, have a great meal, tell some people about who I am, what I'm up to, find my way home. I, can, I could definitely get in a bit of trouble. Fantastic. So what is this thing about 70% of your personal proceeds to end suffering? So Maybe we start with what does suffering mean to you and, and where did this come from? Great question. So I, I would say fundamentally that I'm 
somebody who is motivated by actually having an effect on the world. I'm, I'm not somebody who sees money as an end in itself. For me, money, resources, they're just tools that we exchange, that we use to help improve the, the state of living that we find ourselves in. And for me, th this is actually something that's been more recent on my journey that I've really spent a lot of time thinking through what my values really are and, and what's ultimately motivating me. And I was very fortunate to come across a movement that's actually called effective altruism. Um, and it's grounded actually in some pretty deep philosophy work that's been done in, in, in the past few years. But it basically goes down to what makes life meaningful and ultimately the world that we find ourselves in is positive and negative states of being. And so we all know uh, what it is to feel positive things, to feel happy, to feel excited, hopeful for what's to come. But we all also know what it is to feel negative states of being, pain, suffering, and all that. And if you think about what makes us different from stones and the dirt on the ground, it's the fact that we have conscious thoughts and feelings and we're able to actually feel these positive and, and, and negative states. And for me, what I've ultimately found to be truly distressing about the world that we find ourselves in is that we're in a world today of enormous inequality and enormous resources. And as human societies, we've made a tremendous amount of progress over the past several hundred years. We've invented wonderful things. And in some places that has led to uh, dramatic improvements in quality of life where the average age just a few hundred years ago was less than 40. Now we find ourselves in a world where the average age is over 70. And that's fantastic. But the reality is that those advancements have not been equally distributed. And so we find ourselves in, in a world today where on the one hand, we have billionaires who have this wealth and the ability to just do crazy things that nobody, none of our ancestors would have ever thought would have been possible. You got billionaires taking joy rides into space. Uh, right. you know, it's just fun. <laughs> um, yeah. but, but at the same time, you still have half a million children every year dying from diarrhea, mostly mm on the African continent. And you just look at that and, and you think, hey, this system is, is a little bit broken. There are bugs in what's going on here. And right. so you can have these amazing technological advancements and achievements, but if they're ultimately not getting to everyone, then what's the point? Are, are we really going to, do we really accept as humans that it's okay to leave behind so many of our own? And I think to me, that's, that's something that has really hit home and is what's now become something that, that I find very motivating in why I'm doing what I'm doing. Because ultimately, if the only reason that I were doing this was to make a lot of money for myself personally, then I, I, I should stop now because you know <laughs> I have already more than I need to take care of my kind of personal needs um, and, and requirements. But through some of the organizations that are actually affiliated with this movement, I actually came across a really interesting one, which is called Founders Pledge. And they exist actually for the purpose of getting founders like myself to actually legally commit to donate a certain percentage of their eventual proceeds towards effective charities and effective causes. When I came across that organization, I had a light bulb moment. I realized, aha, this is what I've been looking for. This is what I've been looking for to align my personal values and my personal beliefs and ambitions for what resources should be created for. 
with my actual actions day to day in growing Wasoko to be a bigger and bigger company. And as soon as I took that pledge, now for me, I am truly motivated to build as big a company as possible because ultimately that means that's going to be, you know, the more and more resources going towards actually fixing these systems and these challenges that we find ourselves in today. Man, you are preaching to the choir here and that being me, and I'm sure the audience is also loving this. And, and I say that because to say that our stories are very similar, right? In terms of philosophically speaking and what drives us. So I run Impact Africa Network, which is a venture studio. And, you know, in 2018, actually, I, I made the decision to move back home. Here's where I grew up after 17 years in Silicon Valley. And the whole mission was how do we get our young talent on the playing field, on the innovation entrepreneurship journey? Because we live in the techpreneur age, as you've so eloquently kind of stated, people are taking joy rides into space because they've done the entrepreneurship thing and built billion dollar companies. So we live in the techpreneur age, tech entrepreneurs are the emperors of our day. It's just a patent fact. And so I knew that if we, if we were not able to get our young talent into the innovation entrepreneurship game, then in 10 years, we would be sitting on the outside looking in. And I see this as a moment where you could actually change so much because you could put resources and opportunity into the hands of people who all they need is, is passion, skill, commitment to make something happen as you yourself have proven. And Impact Africa, our mission is to ensure young, talented Africans have a chance at participating in the digital transformation of Africa as creators and owners. And it's so fascinating that you talk about the Founders Pledge, for example. We are set up as a nonprofit, US 501c3. That's very intentional because we are solving the zero to one phase of innovation and entrepreneurship. That very notorious phase, uh, before you can even talk to anybody about capital, if you don't come from legacy wealth or any of that. So we exist at the behest of successful entrepreneurs. So I knew what Silicon Valley, the ethos that drove that place. So I could tap into that. So all the money that has funded our entire journey has come from successful founders, folks who've exited and who are now looking to make a difference, your types, so to speak. And it's very, and we actually have a fundraising campaign. We call it the, the hundred founders challenge. And we actually, so it's really built around folks coming to share their wisdom and then giving to us philanthropically so we can continue doing the work that we do. And I'll say that one final thing. What drives us, what drives me specifically, is I completely agree with what you're saying around this notion that the system is broken. It is actually, it is, the iniquity is crazy. It is extractive. It is not a conscious way of being in terms of how we build things, how we build businesses, all the institutions that we have. For me, what drives me is this notion of building businesses that hold human well-being at their core. So all, all the projects that we do come from that philosophy. It's not something I sat down, Daniel, and was like, you know what? I'm going to do this thing. No, it was just going, putting one foot in front of the other in pursuit of what you care about. And that's essentially, when I look across our portfolio of projects, that's what's at the core of what we're trying to do. Every single problem we're trying to solve has a human being at its core. And we are building from that backwards. So super excited about what you're doing and all this stuff. But let's continue with your story because this is so exciting. So California born and, and raised, and I know how Asian families are very much about books and, 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 and maybe your family was slightly different because they had the cultural thing going. But you, you started international studies and linguistics, and then you went to become a startup CTO. Those are two very uh, distinct, very different paths. How does this happen? And then one more thing, you ended up in rural Egypt and Kenya. So can you map this? 
path for us so we can understand how this, what's this about? Absolutely. It's a bit non-obvious how, how I ended up where I am today, but indeed I have a lot of different interests as, uh, as you might've been able to tell. And, and so I think in university, in my studies, I was officially on a track of international relations and linguistics. However, I was also learning how to code on the side and from that got involved in a number of kind of side hustles, building websites and apps for different folks. And uh, so I, I think in being from California as well, I think exposure to tech ecosystem and all of that too was something that was always uh, in the background for me. And, and what I realized is that through my variety of interests of which international travel and, and global affair was a huge part, I actually had the opportunity with my technology skill set as well to think about opportunities and, and challenges that a lot of other people with a tech background weren't thinking about. And so actually my time in Egypt came through a study abroad program that was actually when I was learning Arabic. And in the village, I got to know some of the, the local shopkeepers uh, who were just running the, the small stores. And I realized that they didn't have these systems in place to actually order the goods to restock. And I had been doing work with a few different systems at the time, some different things with SMS notifications. And so the idea came to me of, hey, what if we built out an ordering system to connect the small shopkeepers with the suppliers just through SMS? And so that's actually where the original idea came from. It actually came out of that international linguistics-related experience that just happened to put me in the right context to you know, see an interesting problem that of course, other folks in Silicon Valley would not uh, ever have come across. That's fantastic. It's just following your, your path, doing you, and things start to show up and you keep poking and asking questions. And here we are, $625 million valuation company a few years later. So solving the same problem that the aha moment led you to, so to speak. Yeah? No? Correct, though, I would say with some deviations along the way. So it's interesting. I, I had that initial time in Egypt and then I was back in the States for the, the following term of school. Right. And my university runs a business plan competition. And so I actually mm -hmm. put together this concept for that competition, though I made a strategic choice at the time that I wanted to actually have this system of ordering and restocking actually focused in the healthcare sector. And so the wow. idea was that, hey, Let's focus on restocking health clinics and pharmacies with their essential goods, because ultimately that's where we can actually have life-saving impacts mm -hmm. in our system get implemented and truly adopted. And so that initial concept is actually what we went through the competition. I, I won a, a prize and a bit of funding coming out of that, and then actually promptly decided to drop out of school. So I actually then left university to try to make this thing actually. And it was an interesting initial period. Curiously, we actually did get some traction with some NGOs and some organizations that were doing healthcare work. And so in fact, actually our first customer was this NGO operating in Central America. So I was actually down in Honduras, Nicaragua, Panama for a bit. Kind oh, of wow. Okay. Coding yeah. stuff, like getting it implemented with them. So yeah, we tried to make that work for about a year and a half or so. And I think this is a very interesting thing about building a startup, which anybody who has read about the journeys 
of, of different founders before you'd be familiar with, the first idea that you start with is actually usually not the idea that ends up actually working. Right. Right. So we went down this healthcare path and we even got some customers in it, but we just weren't able to get the level of growth that we expected to. And right. that actually became a bit of a challenge too, because after we got our first few customers, I was in fact able to convince some angel investors to give us some funding, uh, right. nothing big, a, a couple hundred thousand dollars. And, uh, but then we kind of ran into this wall and I, I realized that, Hey, this is the time where we have to actually look in the mirror and make some hard choices. And if we need to pivot, the time to do it is now. Right. You can't wait for these things because every week that goes by is money out the door. Right. And realize that, hey, this healthcare space is not working out as we expect. Maybe we should go back to our roots a bit and, and kind of explore some of the more commercial sectors. And that's in fact, when we then said, okay, let's reach out to any consumer goods company out there across emerging markets and try to actually find a partnership where we can get going in that direction and kind of show some traction, show some growth. So maybe our investors can put in a bit more to, to keep us going. And that's wow. in fact, actually how I ended up in Kenya was I had reached out to a few companies over here and uh, the breakthrough partnership actually interestingly came from Wrigley, the chewing gum company, the guys yeah, who sell, chewing gum company. Yeah, yeah, you know, well. the, the guys who sell juicy fruit and double mint and all of that. And they were interested in, in, in the solution and what, uh, what we built. And they said, Hey, yeah, if you come out to Kenya, we'll be the first people to try it out. And so two weeks later, I took a flight out and uh, yeah, more or less uh, been on the continent ever since. Amazing. That's a fascinating story. You pivoted, not just the business sector segment, but the actual continent that you were actually working this on. So that's a, that's an amazing uh, resourcefulness. So I guess the question becomes. Were you always going to become an entrepreneur? Was this always in your DNA? Because you dropped out of school. That speaks to a certain level of precocity and kind of self-belief and conviction that is not normal. So yeah, tell us about that. Were you always going to be an entrepreneur? What happened? That's a great question. I actually don't know where it came from precisely. If you look at my whole family, it's actually all doctors. My mom's a pharmacist. My grandfather was a dentist. It's very traditional careers, people who stay in school and do well and, and get there. So I, I, I don't know where it came from, uh, to be honest, but I, I think at the end of the day, my just unrelenting curiosity and desire for adventure and, and parts less known. I, I think is something that has really driven me and, and continues to motivate me today. I'm, I'm. I'm always thinking about how do we solve this problem and how do we uncover areas that have just not been served before. And I think that with that curiosity mindset, there's an endless number of things that you can ultimately discover and potentially create value in. And I think for me, it was just this continuous process of starting the journey, having literally no idea where we would end up going, if anywhere, but then not stopping and just running into one wall and saying, okay, let's go in the other direction. Let's try doing that. And so we hit another wall and then, okay, let's pivot and, and go in a slightly different place. And if you just keep doing that enough, eventually you'll find a clear path forward. And I think that's, that's what kept us alive to where we are today. Amazing. 
So let's talk about the current business today, because we just got into the funding conversation. And if somebody's listening to this for the first time, they're like, what do you guys do? Hopefully they're not driving somewhere and trying to go on their phone to, to, to look you guys up to understand why would somebody put $125 million into a company called Soko in Africa? Africa is hot, but that's not the entire story. So you guys are solving an, an essential problem, access to, and this is what you, how you characterize it. I'll just speak it back to you and then you can break it down. Fundamentally, it's a logistics business, right? For fast moving, fast moving consumer goods and services. Is that a good characterization? I'll hand it over to you. Yes, basically what we're doing is supplying essential goods. So think of rice, soap, toilet paper, you name it, to restock mom and pop stores across Africa while also giving them financing to grow. So the service for your average duka here in Kenya could be they order through our app for three bags of rice, two boxes of soap, and they need to restock the store because they've just sold out. And usually that shopkeeper would have to, in fact, leave their store. So shut down for several hours, go into town to a wholesaler, buy the goods there, transport them back themselves. And they'd have to do all that while paying up front to actually get the products. And right. so with Wasoko, they're able to order for that rice and soap. We'll actually deliver it to them same day free of charge. And then on the back of that, the qualified customers, once we have an ordering history with them, will actually start to give them credit. So actual mm -hmm. kind of payment terms where they can order up front, get the goods, and then pay back to us up to one week later. And so right now, we've been able to successfully implement this across over 50,000 of these mom and pop wow. stores across six different countries. So Kenya, nice. Tanzania, Rwanda, Uganda, and now Cote d'Ivoire and Senegal as well. Fantastic. And so for somebody sitting somewhere in the Western world, they're trying to understand, okay, you move consumer goods and services to mom and pop shops, and they're trying to, in their mind, see what this looks like. So talk a little bit about how distribution, it's very different how distribution happens here, right? It's in, in the U.S. it's big box stores and very structured top-down corporations, right? The Safeways of the world in the U.S. and all kinds of very established distribution, supply chain, value chain industry. Over here, it's very different, right? It's the solopreneur play, right? Small, what you'd call, we call them kiosks, right? Where individual vendors that are embedded in communities sometimes chick and jaw next to each other. And so talk a little bit about, about that, if, if you will, so that you can, folks listening to this from other parts of the world, a sense of how distribution happens here. And maybe in terms of the volumes, in terms of the numbers, the, the, the addressable market and the opportunity and how it actually works. Absolutely. As you laid out, in Africa, over 90% of all goods are actually sold through these mom and pop stores. And these are kiosks. These are tin shacks on the corner of the road where everybody goes to buy their rice, their soap, all these products. And an interesting part of that is they buy it one piece at a time. In Kenya, we'd say the Kidogo economy. And so people are literally buying a 20 cents worth of rice. They're buying one sachet of laundry detergent so they can do their clothes. They can wash them this week. And that's very different from their average American family who might go to Walmart and buy 
a 20 pound box of laundry detergent that's going to last them, you know, the whole year. And for the big difference between the, the two kind of supply chains is that in the U.S., and of course you still have kind of small corner shops in the U.S., but maybe you see them in a, in a few kind of big major urban cities, you know, kind of bodegas in, in New York uh, and stuff like that. But they're definitely not the majority of the retail economy. But then even shops, say the bodegas in New York, they actually do get deliveries to resupply them. You have trucks that are coming in every morning to restock the shelves. And right. that means that the, the shop owner can just focus on selling to customers and they don't have to ever kind of lock up the store and go walk five kilometers to, to buy goods and then pay a, a truck to bring them back. That's not the experience of a retailer in the U.S. But on the continent, this is absolutely what the vast majority of retailers are facing you know, every day. And so the fact that you don't have this kind of last mile distribution ecosystem, but the fact that it's a huge market, this is over $600 billion of consumer goods every year that are sold through these mom and pop stores. It just means that it's a hugely underserved segment where ultimately at the end of the day, consumers, so the actual kind of average uh, people, the one in she is paying more for their soap than they should be other. And that's really the opportunity that we see is Wasoko, which is if we can come in and verticalize these supply chains, actually source directly from the manufacturer and then deliver all the way down to the point of sale to, to, to that shop, then hopefully what we can do is help actually make essential goods more affordable for average people. And that increase in purchasing power is fundamentally the purpose of the company. And that's also where the financing comes into play as well, because a big challenge for the, the mom and pop stores is not having the working capital, not having the cash up front to be able to restock all the goods they would like. And so for us being able to give them the option to buy now, pay later, such that they can get the goods that they need to serve the community and the demands um, that they have, but then ultimately pay back for them once they've sold is a way to also increase that purchasing power as well. Fantastic. And let's take a step back here and, and walk the audience through, through the journey, the dif different distinct growth phases you've gone through. So you found a partner on the ground and, and let's even before we do that, let's talk about your, who you are with, because you talk about we, and, and I'm sure you have some co-founders and you can talk a little bit about that as you get into this question. Would love to get a sense of, okay, you land on the ground, you and your co-founders, if, if there are more than one, and then you start the process. So if you could speak about it, this was phase one, this was what was going on, phase two, this was what was going on, and this is how we ended up at this phase, however many phases those are. And also talk about how the company grew alongside that. So who are your co-founders? Who's the we here? Good question. So I'll start from when we showed up in Kenya. So we've covered all the healthcare stuff before and whatnot. So from the time we, we showed up in Kenya, the first people to hit the ground there were myself and Josh, my, my co-founder who, so Josh was somebody who actually met when I was just dropping out of university and I uh, got some advice that, Hey, you need somebody with a bit more gray hair, uh, who's actually built uh, business and operations before. And Josh was, was the perfect guy because he had in fact um, spent uh, many years across emerging markets. In fact, also on the continent, he did the, the Peace Corps back in the day, did his master's in Egypt as well, and then worked in international development for a bit and, and a few different organizations after that. And he, him and I, after we pivoted away from healthcare, uh, were the first ones to show up here. 
And the first thing we were doing was just embedding ourselves into the supply chain of Wrigley. Uh, so understanding the chewing gum, how it's moving around, how it's going, all this. And the evening I was coding and actually updating our system to be able to fit the use case for, for the company. And uh, at the same time, I realized that, hey, ultimately when it comes to implementing this stuff where we're, we're, we, we need the right uh, kind of local leadership that's actually going to know how to work with the different stakeholders that we had. And so we, after asking around quite a bit and talked to a number of different people, ended up bringing on our kind of first uh, uh, a team member in uh, David Marika. And so David was uh, kind of a true hustler and knew all the ins and outs of uh, supply chain. He had done kind of distribution for Procter & Gamble back in the day and, and totally knew the space. And uh, that actually turned out to be essential because, in fact, we implemented a pilot with Wrigley, but then that pilot itself ended up being a failure. And so we actually had to pivot again so to kind of say, okay, we had phase one trying to still implement this asset light software platform to just manage ordering between the shops and, but realize that what would happen is the shop, the Duca would order for one bag. Uh, oh, wow. And <laughs> the problem, you know what I'm talking about. If you go to the, you go to a Duca and you're actually buying gum, you're buying it. Once it's, once again, as I said, this is the, the Kidoga economy, the piece by piece right. economy. So. Right. Right. People are buying the one piece of gum. Piece of gum. Right. 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 It's like two bucks. So you're buying this like one piece of gum that's worth like two cents. And right. the, the shopkeeper is buying a bag of these pieces of gum. It's a hundred piece bag that's right. still only worth actually two dollars. <laughs> but that's right. what that's what stuck, right? Because right. as I said, these shops they have limited working capital and their their budget for kind of gum is two hundred shillings. It's two dollars. It, and it so what that means is like, they can't make a big bulk purchase of 10 boxes of chewing gum. No, they, all they need is one bag. And so we had all of these small orders coming through of one bag, two bag, which is just like a $2, $4 type of order. And of course right. the real distributor, these guys have been <laughs> delivering hundreds of boxes at a time to say supermarkets or big wholesalers, something like that. So right. of course they're not going to divert their truck you know, into Kangwara to deliver 200 shillings worth of gum to one shop. One right? bag out of that big shop. This is not going to do that. And so it, it was this very interesting situation where we realized, hey, there's this massive economy of all of these shopkeepers. Who, the 200 shilling, the 200 shilling market, yeah, who, $2 market. Exactly. Who want to be able to restock an item $2 at a time. And the current supply chain is unable to do that. So what we realized, and then in fact, we needed to do another pivot. And maybe this takes us into phase two, which is where we said, okay, if the Wrigley distributor is not willing to serve this segment because it doesn't make sense economically for them to right. do these small orders, maybe there's still a way to make this work. And we took a step back and we thought about it and we did some calculations and we said, made some assumptions, which were basically, look, if we can actually get shops to buy not just the gum, but all the other stuff they need from us, then actually the average order value of what we could get in aggregation should be pretty significant. Um, Makes you know, sense. Yeah. Much bigger than, you know, what an individual consumer would buy otherwise. And so we took that hypothesis and we went to Wrigley and we said, Hey, what if 
we run a pilot here where we actually do some of this last mile distribution ourselves, the one bags at a time. We'll break bulk. Right. We'll do the kind of on-demand thing. And let's see how that goes. And they were open to it and we were able to actually run the pilot. And sure enough, we demonstrated that we were able to significantly increase their sales in the neighborhood <laughs> that we were targeting. And then also increase, of course, the satisfaction of the shops we were serving because now you know, they didn't have to go get the gum themselves. And very soon, of course, they're saying, hey, can you deliver all the other stuff too? And so then <laughs> we went to Unilever and we went to Nestle and lots of local companies, Big Co and all these folks and slowly started getting their products on board as well. So maybe that takes us then into, you know, phase three, which is then the kind of feeling of horror when we realized that, oh no, like now actually what we're building is like a proper operational distribution company as well as a tech company. And so that was then a, a period of really a, a year or two where we had to actually figure out operation. How do we open scale up this business because uh, running warehouses and doing the last mile delivery and all that is no joke. And right. so yeah. that, that's once again, where we were able to build up tremendous local leadership who had actually done a lot of these operations before, even though the very first warehouse we were operating out of was actually just a two bedroom apartment in Jamhuri. So we literally, it was like full of chewing gum. And that's like where we were at the time, just like <laughs> delivering juicy fruit out of this apartment. And it was a pretty, pretty crazy time. But once we actually saw the demand from the customers picking up, we saw the interest in the other goods, we were able to build some partnerships. Then we still had to scale up these operations too. But generally speaking, I would say since then, we, we still the same model to this, just at a much bigger scale. We're no longer in, uh, in the Jamhuri apartments. We now have <laughs> something like 40 warehouses across, uh, across six countries. So we've, we've come a long way. Fantastic. So now you have 40 warehouses um, across six, six countries, essentially. Right. So you are, this is fascinating because I'm trying to get an analogy for folks, again, who, who are not local to so imagine what is it like for, what is this for Africa? What is this for the US type of thing? You're doing, in a sense, Amazon with physical endpoints, if you will. Yeah, it, it is a, a B2B e-commerce business. So right. we are facilitating the ordering as well as the delivery of goods to restock stores. Amazing. Yeah, that's fascinating. And so here's, uh, talk about how you, how the company has grown. So you, the two of you started in 2014, right? I, I'd imagine is when you touched ground somewhere around there. What's the size of the company right now? Total footprint headcount. What's that look like? Today, we have nearly 1,000 full-time employees across oh, wow. all of the, the, the countries that I've mentioned. We have amazing leadership of people who actually know what they're doing, and that's, that's been essential for scaling up these operations. As mentioned, I think there's no way we would have been able to do this without this very specific domain expertise over time. But yeah, I, I, I think that we still have an enormous way to go and ultimately a lot of work to get there. Amazing. So in terms of evolution, you know, your leadership, your, your journey as a leader, right? How you've evolved over time from 2014 until now, what are some of the distinct lessons or what's that evolution process been like? How are you different today than maybe you are back then? I think as a leader, I have learned a tremendous amount and hopefully improved a bit over that period too. I, I think the, the most critical part about being a founder is recognizing the 
essential need to reinvent yourself or basically mm-hmm. level up into a whole new role every six months. It has been astonishing to me. If you compare back what I was doing in, say, even 2018, that was the point where I was still actually in the warehouse doing stuff and rearranging things and saying, oh, yeah, this is how we should do this. And this is how we should think about this. And really, all of that was just done on a first principles basis, just looking at operations and processes and saying, how can we do this better? Now, as I said, we have people who are much, much more capable and experienced doing those types of operations. And therefore I do not and should not be involved in that picture really whatsoever. Nowadays, my role is much more focused around how can we create the best conditions for growth and success of our ultimate purpose. And really that comes down to inspiring our existing teams motivating them, giving them clear guidance on their goals and the, the, the outcomes that's expected, attracting new talent and convincing people to bet their careers on what we're doing and why we're the, uh, we're the horse to back. And then also with investors, sharing the journey and the amazing potential of what we're doing as well, and ultimately convincing them that we're also worthy of, of their capital and can, can ultimately deliver to them a, a big return. Fantastic. Now, as we wind down here, I'm just going to go into some kind of my version of rapid fire kind of questions or or phrases and and just get your reaction. And so if you're ready to go, we'll just, are you ready to go into this? Let's do it. Okay. Working in Africa. First thought. Amazing. Life-changing. Right. Like, like no else. Yeah. I, I believe that the African continent is truly the final frontier for business. I think that if you wanted to go work in China right now, you should have been there 20 years ago. If you wanted to go work in India, that you should have been there 10 years ago. I think the time for Africa is now. This is an enormous market of a billion and a half people with, in fact, the same GDP as India, but with an enormous amount of greenfield opportunities and challenges to be solved. And if if you're somebody uh, who's ready to roll up their sleeves and put in years of, of hard work, I, I think there's no better place than be. Success for Soko Watch. What does that look like? Success for Wasoko is becoming the champion of e-commerce across the continent. It's reducing the cost of essential goods for the average citizen. And it's building on that foundation additional services that can transform the lives of the masses as well. Fantastic. Success for Daniel Yu. Success for me is being able to dedicate my resources and and ultimately my time and my energy towards reducing unnecessary suffering for as many people. What is your vision of Africa's startup ecosystem in 2030? What does that look like? In 2030, I expect that the African tech ecosystem will be one of the largest in the world. I think that we'll have the most exciting companies, we'll have the the, the highest rate of growth, and hopefully the highest amount of investments coming in by then as well. Fantastic. And I'm sure your investors will have, hopefully by then, be very satisfied and excited. They have not uh, seen their return yet, but they'll be very excited about seeing their markups uh, go up. 
listen, this has been awesome. I couldn't be more uh, thankful and honored to actually be able to actually speak with you today on this auspicious day for yourself, your co-founder, your team. You landed here eight years ago and you have a thousand people in your organization created a thousand jobs. You know, what we say at Impact Africa, we have this thing called the 10-10-10 plan. 10 scale-ups that provide 10,000 jobs that are valued at $10 billion as a portfolio. That's what we are working on. And you are proof positive that we are going to make it happen for sure. We have no doubt about that. So thank you for blazing the trail, Daniel, and proving that it's doable. Thank you, Mark, for having me. It's been a pleasure. Fantastic. Awesome.